You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning. Ah, oh, yeah, so good to be here. I uh, just want to thank you for taking time out of your week to gather with us here today. Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Luke Hall. Uh, if you have met me, my name is still Luke Hall. Um, <laughs> sorry. Thank you. Uh, Providence is a church gather. Uh, formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, we teach from the scriptures each and every week because we believe that they've been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. Uh, We're currently in a series in the book of Mark titled King and Crown, where we've been looking at the life of Jesus as well as how our current culture tries to find their identity outside of him. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 44. Um, And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some in the pockets in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, just consider that a gift from us, because we would just love for you to study the Word in your own time, too. Again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 28. No, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 44. Um, If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Providence, hear the Word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all our heart, and with all our understanding, and with all our strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he understood, answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far away from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teachings he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and a place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box, for they have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put everything she had, all she had to live on. Providence is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it is your first time, I want to say thank you for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here, and we hope you enjoy your time with us. Like Luke said, we are uh, continuing our work through the book of Mark. We're hoping to finish out chapter number 12 this morning. And as you can see, we got uh, a, a lot of verses to get through. So what I'd love to do uh, for the sake of time is to just pray for us first before we jump in. Ask the Lord to speak to us through his word, each of us individually, but also us corporately. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray, and then we'll jump right into the passage. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us, that your word is truth. We ask that you now would give us ears to hear that truth. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we might experience the leading of your Holy Spirit, the comfort of your Holy Spirit, the truth that comes from only you, my God, the conviction that comes from only you, the admonition that comes from only you. We ask now that you administer to each of our needs, those that we know we have and those that we do not know. And that, my God, you would also minister to us corporately as a body. 
And most of all, we do ask now that you would fan into flame a love for you that is with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and that bleeds over into a love for our neighbor, my God. We pray that you would restore to us that kind of love and that it would lead to good fruit in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I want to start off, I want to read through that first stanza again. The reason I want to do this quickly is that this text is not only regularly mentioned at Providence, but it's a very familiar passage, hopefully, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've been a Christian for any length of time. This is common vernacular amongst Christians. This is what they call the great commandment of Jesus. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time uh, focused on necessarily unpacking what's said because I'm sure that it is familiar in the first stanza. I want to spend the majority of our time on the next three stanzas and to ask ourselves how they are useful in defining the great commandment, both in how we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how we can love our neighbor as ourselves, and perhaps things that we ought to beware of that would snuff out that kind of love. Now, the reason that I want to do this is not only because it should be common to many Christians, but also here at Providence, I feel like, if I'm being honest, I'd feel like a terrible pastor if we, didn't, we weren't all at least somewhat aware of this passage because every week we stand up in our benediction and we say roughly this. So we say it to each other, love God and love others. That's this commandment, okay? That's where it comes from. Love God and love people was not something that we you know, made up. Jesus already had copyrighted that and uh, done a great job with it. So let's read this and then we'll we'll get through the rest. I'm just going to point out a handful of things that you should take note of before we get into the next three verses that happens here. To catch you up, if you haven't been here with us, and you can listen to some of the podcasts, but in this chapter, Jesus has been continually confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders of his day in order to catch him saying something that could potentially be used against him in a trial whether that trial be with the Sanhedrin or whether that trial be with the Roman guards. And so they're questioning him. They're questioning him. They're asking him things that they really don't want the answers to. They just want him to say something that could be twisted and used against him. Now we know if we've read the rest of the gospels that inevitably they actually will put him on trial. They will falsely accuse him and they will gain their conviction both from the Sanhedrin and also from the Roman procurator at the time, Pilate. But nonetheless, they're trying to get it justifiably here, and they fail miserably. Here's the last set of accusations or questions that are posed to Jesus, and they happen here with the scribes. So let's kick it off in verse 28. We're going to read through verse 34. I'll stop a couple times and just point some things out, and then we'll, we'll continue. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one with another, and seeing that he, he being Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, check this out, without hesitation. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is important because if you remember, Moses saw a burning bush and God revealed himself as Yahweh. It's capital L-O-R-D in your Bible rather than capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. This is Yahweh, I am who I am. God reveals himself to Moses as singular, monotheistic. There's one God, there's none besides me. This is totally different than all of the ancient religions at the time. And those that would even to come where they had a a big pantheon of gods. God says, I am one. There's no one else besides me. I am God and there is no other. And you will be my people and Moses, I'm going to send you. So Jesus says, this is essential to understand and to loving God is knowing that he is one. There's one God. It's not multiple gods, the God of the ocean, the God of the sky you know, the God of the babies and the God of the big people. This is, there's the God of Israel, the God of everything. Jesus says that's the starting line. And then verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe has said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart with all your understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, when he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Key line here. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So everybody's silenced by this. They're marveled by this interaction. It's interesting because Jesus actually commends the scribe. If you've 
if you were paying attention while we were reading the passage together, the rest of these next three stories, he's going to spend basically lambasting the scribes. But he commends this guy, which is kind of interesting. He moves immediately in to this next story. So Jesus gets done with the scribes, says, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that you understand or that you are the kingdom of God. He says, you're not far from getting it. And then he goes into this next passage, which I think is going to underscore just what the scribes don't get and how essential it is. So let's read this next story. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, quote, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, close quote. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, Jesus asked this question. How come the scribes think that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, but David says the Messiah is his Lord and master? He says, that seems confusing. And it says that all the people loved it. They loved what he was saying. They received him gladly. Now, this was and is still a prominent misunderstanding of the scripture that pervades currently. The scribes rightly believed that the Messiah from the Old Testament would be a descendant of the throne of David, meaning that he would come from Davidic lineage. Now, this is true. There are plenty of Old Testament prophecies, plenty of direct scriptures that tell us this. One of the reasons Jesus was meant to be born in Bethlehem was for this very reason, the city of David. So they're right on this front. However, Jesus points out a text from the Old Testament written by David himself that makes the prediction about the Messiah a bit more mysterious. The psalm that is quoted by Christ states that the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, capital L-O-R-D, the I Am, said unto my Lord, this is coming from the mouth of David, meaning David says, the Lord God, the, the Father of all, said unto my master, sit at my right hand until I make, the King James says, thine enemies thy footstool. And Jesus says, Why is it that they think that this Messiah is going to be the son of David if David's calling him Lord? Well, Israel is seeking an earthly Messiah, an earthly Messiah to free them from their earthly troubles and their earthly slave masters and taskmasters, the Romans. But God has sent them a Messiah that precedes David, one that is the Lord of David. The true Messiah will free them from their spiritual maladies and their spiritual taskmaster, Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. And they do not understand this. And the reason they don't understand it is because the Messiah was coming, not in the likeness of Josiah, not in the likeness of David, but as their king. He was coming as God in the flesh. And that's what's missing. It's why Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that that's the essential starting line for true love for God. Because you have to understand that the Lord is one. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, that Jesus himself came and said, I am who I am. He said it seven times, actually, in the book of John. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the door of the sheep. And then the eighth time, he just says outright to the guards when they ask, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Instead of saying, I'm here or it's me, he says, I am he. And it's all the guards fall down on their back, moved by this moment of force. I am who I am. I want to read to you Psalm 110. And the reason I want to read this is I want you to read the entirety of the passage. Jesus quoted the first verse. This passage will give you an indication as to why the scribes may have missed it. Because hear me, we may have missed it too. If you were expecting what they were expecting, you would have probably been like, Jesus can't be the Messiah. And here's why. Verse one, remember this is David writing and it's a messianic prophecy. The Lord, there's that capital L-O-R-D. That's different than L-O-R-D. Curion. This is, this is translative, but the I am who I am says to my Lord, the master. So it's father says unto the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. You notice what this passage said when Jesus taught this, what did it say? The throng received him gladly. They loved what he was saying. They received freely what he was saying. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, that for us should bring up an, uh, this should bring up in your mind from the womb of the morning, is this an incarnational passage? 
that the Messiah would come from a, a woman's womb, would be born of a woman, but not of a man, from the seed of a woman, but the father would cause this man. This is talking incarnational language about the Messiah. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. Are you ready for one of the most controversial, difficult passages of the entirety of the Bible? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is confusing in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews tries to explain it. It becomes more confusing. It is very confusing. But here's the gist. Jesus was meant to be the son of David. The Messiah was meant to be the son of David that came in the kingly line. And Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. But how is it that Christ can come in the kingly line but perform a priestly function? In the Old Testament, you had to come from the tribe of Levi to be a priest, to perform a priestly function. And yet we believe that Jesus is our high priest, that he went in and he was not only the priest, but the sacrifice. How can this be? Well, the Bible tells us because Jesus was a priest after the order of one who preceded Levi, named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is one of these very odd characters in your Bible. Couple of verses in Genesis. It's like the Tom Bombadil of Lord of the Rings. You're like, who is this guy? Just shows up and then he puts on the ring. It doesn't affect him. And then he says, see you guys later and tosses the ring back to him. You know, that's Melchizedek. He shows up to Abraham in the book of Genesis and Abraham being the worst, the first man called of God to build a nation actually tithes and submits to Melchizedek, this king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness and king of peace. Abraham tithes to him and they take communion together. They break bread and wine and then Melchizedek disappears. You don't ever hear about him again in the Bible. And this psalm is saying that the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. It's like, okay, let's keep going. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That's a nice coffee mug passage, isn't it? Didn't know that was in there, did you? It's probably why Mark didn't quote the full thing. You know, it's like, whoo, let's keep going. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now I can see why the religious elites of the day would have missed this. They focus on the second half of this passage, verses five through seven. And so they're looking for a military commander to come who crushes their enemies who are enslaving them. They're looking for someone who's going to fill up the fields with the corpses of their enemies and bring Israel out of bondage from the Romans. They're looking for someone who's a lot more zealous for military victories. And then they show up and Jesus is having dinner with the very people that they're interested in demolishing. And so they're not keen on accepting this man as their Messiah. And the reason is because I think they didn't understand as I, as hear me, I'm not sure we all would have the first half of this passage, which focuses on the incarnation, the mystery of God in the flesh, born of a virgin. Notice that Psalm 110 tells us that he will first rule in the midst of his enemies before he defeats his enemies finally. In other words, Jesus will rule in the midst of the Roman enemies all around him. He will allow himself to come under their power and be destroyed so that he can fulfill his priestly role. And then he will return a second time and fulfill his kingly role. Now, for the Christian, this totally makes sense because we understand there's two advents. There's a first coming of Messiah, a second coming of Messiah. The first, he fulfills priestly duties by the blood of the cross, and he comes as a lamb who's to be slain. And the second, he comes as a lion who comes to rule. We get this. But for the first century Jewish, ex expectation of the Messiah would have been earthly in its sense. The scribes were unaware of these two advents. And because they had missed this first part of the psalm, they missed the beautiful prediction that Jesus would not merely be a king like Josiah who went out and fought the wars, a king like Saul, a king like David. He was going to be the son of God, the only begotten son of God. The incarnation was going to be more than a miracle. It was going to be that God decided to wrap himself in sinful flesh and come and dwell among us. That God did not want to merely send us a warrior. He wanted to send us his own son a son that preceded David, a son that David called Lord. Now you might be asking, what in the world does that have to do with loving God and people? What do we do with that? Well, here's the heart of the passage. In my eyes, there is only one way to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus is uncovering it here. 
That is that we must know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. There is no other way to the Father but through the Son. Jesus told us there's no other way to know and love the Father unless you know and love the Son. If we reject the Son that God has sent into the world, you cannot say that you love the Father. John tells us in 1st and 2nd John, if you say that you love the Father but you have not the Son, you're a liar and there's no truth in you. There's one way to love God and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus tells the scribes, you're close to the kingdom, but you can't quite enter in because you don't understand there's only one door into the kingdom. It's through the broken body of Jesus Christ. It's to know God, is to know Jesus. Philip, upon Jesus' crucifixion, just before it happens, he finally asked Jesus straight out, you talk in mysteries, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will suffice. If you show us who the Father is, we'll know. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you this long that you know me not? He who has seen me has seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you have seen Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance and power, the glory of the Son is of the Father. If you truly love God, you must love the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are to love him, you must know him for who he is, not for who you wish him to be. This is the key element of this passage. The scribes truly desired to love the Lord, but they rejected the son who was the exact imprint of his nature as, they stu- as he stood before them. It's impossible for us to love the Lord our God if we reject his only begotten son. No, Christ is not just merely a good teacher, he's Lord. He's not just merely a worthy prophet among others, he's Lord. Jesus did not come to bring us God's word. He is God's word in the flesh. Jesus wasn't a man who lived a righteous life so that later in the minds of others, he might even become God-like. No, he is God who took on sinful flesh so that he might die for you and I. But he is God in the flesh. He didn't become God-like in the minds of people because he was a good guy. (laughs) No, he is God in the flesh. In other words, love must be directed truly and it must be directed rightly if we are to have love that is genuine. Let me give you an explanation of what I mean. If one of you men were to get up here today, a married man, and you were to say something like, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you about my wife who I love dearly. I want to tell you about her blonde hair and her blue eyes, her love for chocolate and her love for me. I love that she's a tall woman, and he continue on with all these characteristics. And people, some people will be like, listen to this man, he knows his wife so well. How amazing is this? Just so brave up there, loving his wife like that. The only person that would be deeply offended is your wife who has green eyes, brown hair, is shorter than any woman in the room, hates chocolate cake, and is starting to hate you too. It's not honoring to her, even if it's honoring before everyone else, when you describe your wife in ways that do not describe her and then extol your love because you're loving a version of her that only exists in your mind. This is what we often do when we say that we love God, but we reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he actually has revealed himself to be. What do I mean by that? Well, our love for God And our love for Christ cannot be based on this contingency that we've developed through our own desires, even if those contingencies are righteous or unrighteous. Look something like this. We'll say something like, I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength because he never lets me suffer. Well, hear me, friends. When, not if, when you inevitably suffer, you're met with two options. First option is to reject God because you have to admit that you never loved him in the first place, but you only wished that he was a certain way and then you loved who you wished was there. Or B, you'll do something that I see so often, so much, it happens all the time, even while I'm preaching perhaps, that we will simply reject the God of the Bible by saying things like, well, the God that he's talking about is not the God I worship. The God I serve would never do that. Hear me, why do you care about the God that you serve if it's not the true God? Even if you've made him up and he looks better on a poster. Why should you serve that God that you created? This is exactly what the Israelites did when they carved idols. We carve idols and we have them in our hearts. Well, Jesus would never do that. Why? He he already has done it. 
Jesus would never offend you? He was offensive. My God would never be offensive in this nature. Yes, he will. He will and he has and he does not care as much about your feelings as he cares about your soul. Well, that's just not what I believe. What does it, why do you think that what you believe should be right, should be the arbiter of all truth? You and I cannot even keep our promises to ourselves. You know how I know that? We all started on January 1 with some real plans. Uh Uh-huh, and it's September now, and we can't even remember what they were. Now, I know there's some of you who are more type A, and you're like, yes, I can, and that's why your waist size is what it is and mine is what it is. And I would say to you, touche, this is true. Except here's the thing about the moral law. It's like kindergarten morality when you read the Ten Commandments until you try to keep them. And then you realize that you are kindergartens in morality just like I am, that we need a savior. We we cannot be trusted to create our own gods. Do you know why? Because we're terrible gods of our own lives. Even the most type A among us, the most administrative, the most Excel spreadsheet ready to kill it right now and make plans. You know, the best governments that plan everything and try to rule everybody's lives, there's never been a dictatorship that wasn't completely and utterly hopeless because human beings can't even control their living room, much less the nation. We've fallen into the trap of this vanity, and C.S. Lewis calls this out. C.S. Lewis said, we think that our opinions of God are the most important things about us. He doesn't say they're not important, but what he says is, what is infinitely more important is God's opinion of you. You ever thought about this? What matters more, what you think about God or what God thinks about you? Let me give you for instance. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in the sun. It's coming up tomorrow. You ever thought of this? It doesn't matter if you believe in the sun. It doesn't matter if you believe in gravity. If you jump off the house, it goes poorly for you. Gravity believes in you, Bubba. He's bringing you on down. No, the ancients understood this. Nehemiah spent his entire life rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. He felt God called him to do it. Torturous nights of labor, no sleep, building with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Enemies constantly seeking to tear down everything that he built, slandering his character behind his back. His life was tough. People saying all sorts of things about him. You know how the book of Nehemiah ends, which was his account of his whole life? Well, let me tell you how it didn't end. I hope everybody remembers me for good. No, he has one concern. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He doesn't care if Tobias and Sanballat and all the guys who hated him still hate him afterwards. He's like, that's fine. God, remember me for good. Your opinion of me matters most. The thief on the cross, listening as his fellow criminal rails against Jesus and questions his deity. You guys remember this. One of the thieves says, if you were God, you could save yourself and us, but you're not God. Just do it. And the other thief With his dying breath, rather than giving his opinion on who Jesus was, he looks to Christ and says, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. What mattered most to him was that Jesus would remember him, his opinion of the thief, not anyone else's. The lesson here seems straightforward. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength means that we must know God. We must know him by name. The Bible tells us there is only one name given unto men under heaven by which we can be saved. God has a name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great I am. You must know him by name in order to love him truly. Paul the apostle seemed to believe this as well. I want to read to you Philippians 3, 7 through 11. This is Paul. He has just gotten done listing out his worldly accolades. And then he says, verse seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. That's the Greek word for dung. I'm gonna keep it at that because the kids are here in order that I may gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may, listen to this, know him 
You can almost hear him saying, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How important is knowing Christ Jesus? The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament seems to think that he is not there yet. He says, I count every, all earthly accolades as rubbish. They're nothing to me. I want to know him. Paul wanted to know that when he gets into eternity, he will have a resurrected body because he knows who he's going to meet when he gets there. He wants to know the sound of his voice. Jesus encouraged his disciples to believe this. My sheep hear my voice and they come when I call. Do we know his voice? Do we know the Lord Jesus? Because it's easy to say, of course I love God. If we do not love the Lord Jesus, we are deceiving ourselves. The Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For to him and by him and through him, all things were created that he might be preeminent. Friends, there's nothing that you have that would not, we should not regularly consider worthy of the trash heap if it's keeping us from knowing and loving Christ. Not a single thing. Not a single thing. All right. I should have warned you. I might not even get through point one. Let's go. Keep going. Verse 38. Then Jesus turns. Listen to this sermon. If you want to hear, he starts to, he's going right at the scribes. Matthew 23 is another one that's tough, but listen to this. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They like having the best seats in the synagogues and the places for honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. That is very tough. Now, I want to say there are cultural differences that sometimes we find in our Bibles, and therefore it starts to be a little bit of a distance because most of you are thinking, listen, I'm not really in danger of this. I don't like wearing robes out. Um... When I go to the grocery store, I try to avert my eyes so I don't make contact with people I might potentially know. So the greetings in the marketplace is totally safe. Best seats, place of honor. I don't have any rich friends. I don't have any cool friends. I sit on the recliner, and that's the seat of honor in my house, you know. Making long prayers is a pretense. You know, we don't live in a culture where, like, if you go on the street corner and you start making long prayers, everybody's going to go, oh, how eloquent. So you're like, no problem for me either. But here's what I think we ought to do. We ought to pull ourselves back and say what was being said at the time and therefore how could we be in danger also in the current time? The warning is stark and clear. It is this. The pursuit of vanity and vainglory will always lead to hypocrisy and hypocrisy will always stifle your love for God and your love for others. I'm gonna say that again. The pursuit of vainglory, vanity, will always lead to hypocrisy and hypocrisy will always stifle a love for God and a love for others. Why do I say it'll lead to hypocrisy? I didn't even say this at the nine, and I have even less time, so maybe I'm supposed to say it. It leads to hypocrisy because self-love convinces you that you are something that you're not, and then you pretend to be that in front of people to maintain the self-glory, the vanity. And then what ends up happening is that which you say you are and that what you actually do are so far apart that hypocrisy is rampant. And when you have that kind of hypocrisy, it's impossible for you to love God and love others because you must keep up the lie. This is what's happening with the scribes. They don't see themselves clearly. They know the Bible. They think they're doing all the right things. But in reality, Jesus says, every disciple they make is twice fold the child of hell as they are. But they never see it. Why? Because hypocrisy has a way of spiritually blinding you to the truth. So let's go through these. What do the robes mean? Well, hear me, friends. There is a vanity of physical appearance. The question we ought to ask ourselves is, in the way that we present ourselves, whether through clothing or whatever decoration we put on, is there a vanity that we want to be seen as attractive, be seen as professional, be seen as athletic, be seen as you fill in the blank, that drives us in the way in which we present ourselves to the world and it ultimately robs us of a love for God and people because we desire more the vainglory of man. What about the greetings in the marketplaces? Well, this one might actually be a little bit 
uh, under the surface, you don't realize what's being said. The rabbis loved to be called rabbi. The scribes loved to be called scribes. Most honorable Pharisees. They loved being titled that. And when people greeted them, it's like, hey, court, how are you doing? That's pastor court to you. What a joke, right? If you know yourself, I'm not saying that the, the office is a joke. What I'm saying is if you know yourself, you realize how much of a joke that really is. That's why Jesus said, don't call each other fathers and teachers. You have one father and you have one teacher that's the Holy Spirit. Was he saying that teachers are bad or dads are bad or that your kids can't call you daddy or else you're going to get struck down? No. He's saying, don't become enamored with titles, professor so-and-so, doctor. Call me doctor, please. It cost me a lot of money in eight years, you know, whatever it may be. And if you're a doctor in the room, bless you, brother. I'm glad you did that, or sister. Okay, I'm not mad at you. Director, representative, we can go on and on. Do not become enamored with titles that are vainglorious for, for men and women like you and I who are but dust and to dust we shall return. The vanity of positions and celebrity, the seats of honor. Who you are is who you dine with. Who you are is who you know. Who you are is what clubs you're in. Who you are is what Christmas invitations you get. Who you got on the speed dial. And so you try to move up the ladder in the company or the corporation or in the family or what people you might be around. And this is vanity of vanities. And then finally, the making long prayers for a pretense is the vanity of self-righteousness. The thing that most often clips at the heels of us as Christians. That we are what we know in the Bible. We are how we articulate the scriptures. We are how biblically sound we are, how theologically astute we are. And that's the sum total of our persona because we know the right things. And you notice that it's nefarious because it actually doesn't matter to us. If we were in a vacuum, we wouldn't care so much about how much we know, but we only can describe how biblically articulate we are by putting our neighbors over and against us and pushing them down, by ranking ourselves. If you're one out of 10, that matters a lot more than one out of one, doesn't it? Well, if you're one out of a hundred, oh, I'm even smarter, one out of a thousand. It's why that companies can convince you to keep playing Candy Crush because they tell you that you have the Albert Einstein IQ. And we just are like, I like this. I'm, I am like 0.3% of the population in Candy Crush. Do you know how good I am? Now, obviously all of these things could be deeply offensive but I think the King James gets it right here. The ESV says that the scribes, they liked these banquets. They liked these seats. They liked Gideon's greetings. But the King James translates it, they loved it. Now, why is that different? Well, because the context is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength or the love for self-glory and vanity. When we love the vainglory of this world, there is no room for God and he gets snuffed out. And do you know what comes next? Well, if you were listening closely, you should know it's the thing I skipped in this passage, the devouring of widows' houses. This is the key. When we love vainglory and we forget about love for God, we inevitably dehumanize and devour the people in our lives that God has called us to love the most. Remember, the scribes were called to take care of the widows. It's not ancillary. It was their job. They're supposed to be caring for these women. And they devoured their houses. Why that verb? Well, because ultimately, if you love vainglory, people become a commodity to you. The friend-enemy distinction even goes away because ultimately people are only in one of two categories when you love yourself. Either they're useful or they're useless to you. Either they're useful in your pursuit of vainglory or they're useless and they can be discarded. If they join in your project of vainglory and encourage that and you become partners in that and you guys maybe, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, then they're friends because they're, they're useful. The moment that they may check you on your vainglory project, they are discarded because they're useless now. And in fact, they're a net negative. You can even see this being mentioned on uh, social media sometimes where people will brag about like purging their friend list because they're, they're too heavy, you know, they're going through trouble. So it's just like, sorry, snip out of my life. It's like, can't bear with that person because they're too messy or whatever. Then Jesus ends with this passage. He sits at the treasury and he sees a widow 
Now, we have to see this. It talks about devouring widows' houses. Then he tells you a story about a widow. What does he say? He sat down opposite the treasure, and he watched people putting money into the offering box. That's like Church 101 worst nightmare, isn't it? Jesus is watching. My wife actually got me these funny stickers. It just says, it's got like Jesus on there. It says, I saw that. She like puts them places like to mess with me. <laughs> it's like, this is like Jesus. Like you look up as you're about to give your offering and you write in, you know, and then Jesus is there. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll add another zero to that, you know. <laughs> like that's terrifying. Um, but it's what he does. It says, many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and she put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And the, and the chapter ends. First of all, Jesus exhibits the character that he called his disciples to embody that the scribes did not. He points out that just as the scribes ignored and did, gave no attention to the widow, Jesus is sitting there watching her when she doesn't know he's watching. Jesus sees what no one else sees. Jesus sees, if you're sitting here today, if you are the most lowly of people that you think, I, I matter the least, no one notices me, no one recognizes me, Jesus always recognizes you. He knows what you're doing. He knows your faithfulness in secret. Everybody else may view you in this way. Well, you know, I have a mean resting face, so people think I'm mean, but I'm not really mean. I pray that God will help me all the time and me be kinder, but I'm just introverted, and I wish people knew me. God knows you. Jesus sees you. And he points out to his disciples something that he's always trying to point out to us, namely that it's oftentimes in the places that we least likely check that we will find the beauty, the wonder, the grace, the mercy, and the glory of God manifest. It was in this widow's life. Now, I want to make mention that I think we live at a time that's unprecedented in human history for so many things, and it's because of technology. But one of the things that I see that's unprecedented is that we have more information about our neighbors than we could possibly do anything beneficial with. You guys agree with me on this? Now, hear me. I know that there are some good results. I can become off as a cynic, so I'm going to mention the good things too. You know a lot about your neighbors that you wouldn't have known maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So you could see a, a friend of yours that maybe lives across the world you've lost contact with. They're going through a tough time. You could send them an encouraging word. That's a good positive. You see a friend that's across the world. You know, they're not your neighbors really, but now through social media, you could send them some money if they're really struggling financially or an old coworker. That seems good. I'm, I'm fine with that. But euphemistically, there are some negative sound downsides like jealousy of others, envy of others, strife over opinions. But the one I want to point out is I think that one of the greatest negatives is that we have more options now to justify our behavior than ever before. See, it used to be confined to close family and friends, but now we've got this plethora of information about our neighbors that we build like a dossier that at the moment of necessity, we pull it out to justify why others should not really be expecting too much of us because look at my friend, you fill in the blank. Let me give you an example. You're married and your, your wife's really getting on to you because, you know, you're a schlub and join the club. But you're like, you know what, babe? You should be glad you're married to me. Look at this. I know this person, this person, this person that they don't do that. Look, I even got record evidence of them not doing it. But then there's me. And listen, I may not take out the trash on time, but at least I'm not a schlub like this. And you got the dossier of your neighbors, right? You're like a spy system at this point. Or it might happen the other way. You know, it's like you should be glad. You should be, you know, praising your lucky stars you're married to a woman like me. That's what your wife may say. Because look at these women. Look what she wears. What if I wore this? But I'm a chaste. And therefore you should be grateful. This passage, you might be thinking, well, where is he going with this? This passage is incredible because it underscores something the Bible's always taught and we've always missed. Namely, being right about your neighbor's sin, being right about institutional corruption, your boss, your friends, your cousins, brothers, sisters, former roommate, doesn't change the fact that you are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, irrespective of those things. 
Notice here, I want, you, I want you to notice, Jesus does not rail against the temple system, even though he's already done that. Jesus does not tell this woman, hey, you don't need to be giving because they actually should be giving to you. This is really backwards. He sits back, he watches, and he praises her for what? The love that is in her heart that leads to sacrificial generosity and worship. And he lets it happen. Why is that so important? Well, at first I thought it odd because I thought that's really sad. If that woman gave all that she had, did she have enough food? Did she have enough to take care of herself? Like it seems kind of sad. And then it hit me. It's because I don't understand at times in my life the real hierarchy and economy of heaven. To be poor and to be given money or to be told that you could skip out on something is a great thing. What a blessing. But to be poor or rich and to be praised by the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest and most spectacular gift you could ever be given. That on the lips of the Lord was this woman's faithfulness. She could never have been given a greater gift than this. What greater thing can a person ask for that the Lord himself would say, she is a faithful woman, greater than everybody else who gave. And here's the thing, she may not have even known, and it makes it even better, that he was there. What a wonderful thing. question that we have to grapple with, and I'll close with this, is if Christ needs to be precious to us, how do we fan into flame that love for him? Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, maybe you've, you've struggled with this, and I think I want you to know, I think it's good for you to admit that rather than playing the game that that's never happened before. You know, like waking up and feeling like at one point it was really easy to read your Bible and now it's very difficult to read your Bible and then soon you begin to be defensive about when your wife asks you about reading your Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody else? Okay, I'll keep going. Prayer, you know, used to be like natural to you. You'd wake up, you'd have your coffee, you had your, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers devotional and you're ready to go. And now you wake up one kid's crying, another kid's lighting something on fire, you're upset about something from the night before with your husband or your wife, and you're just wondering if you're gonna get through that day. You know, and it's a struggle. And so when I say something like the love for Jesus that we're called to here is so supreme, there's, you can't help but a party, you go like, that's so far from me. How am I gonna get to that? I wanna conclude by reading to you. This is an excerpt from Charles Haddon Spurgeon about the first sermon he ever preached at 16 years old. They asked him years later in his life. He preached from the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, just this line, unto you, therefore, who believe that Christ is precious. That was his entire text. Just like, I wish I was that good. Listen to what he says. This text calls to my recollection the opening of my ministry. It's been many years now since as a lad of 16, I stood up for the first time in my life to preach the gospel in a cottage to a handful of poor people who had come together for worship. I felt my own inability to preach, but I ventured to take this text unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious. I do not think that I could have said anything about any other text, but Christ was so precious to my soul and I was in the flush of my youthful love for him. And so I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. Listen to this. I had but just escaped from the bondage of Egypt, and I had not forgotten my broken fetter. Still did I recollect those flames which seemed to burn, seemed to burn along my path, and that devouring gulf which opened its mouth as if ready to devour even me. With all these things but fresh in my youthful heart, I could but speak of his preciousness who had been my savior. He had plucked me as a brand from the burning. He had set me upon a rock. He had put a new song in my mouth. He had established my goings. And now at this time, what shall I say? What has God done? How hath the little one become a thousand and the small one a great people? And what shall I say concerning this text but that if the Lord Jesus was precious to me then, Oh, how precious he is to me now. If I could then declare that Jesus was the object of my soul's desire and that for him I hoped to live and for him I was prepared to die, can I not say, God being my witness, that he is so much more precious to me this day than he has ever been before? Is Jesus this precious to you 
And if not, I want you to not leave this room without pleading with him that he might manifest his love to you in the way that Spurgeon described he had manifested his love to him. I want to reread to you this. I had just escaped from the bondage of Egypt. I had not broken the fetter. Still did I, not rec- still did I recollect those flames that seemed to burn along my path, the gulf that was there to devour me. With all of these things fresh in my youthful heart, I could not but express the preciousness of God, my Savior. What causes our hearts to burn within us with a love for Christ is a meditation on his love for you first. Friends, I want to tell you this. You are loved by God. Do you know how I'm so confident about that, even if I don't know that one of you is going to be on a true crime podcast later? Because God has already manifested his love for you in his son. Do you know the lengths that he was willing to go to the cross to be wrongfully accused, to be nailed there, to be scourged, to be shamefully treated, to be tempted by Satan himself, to bear with those disciples that did not know the spiritual things? Friends, you are loved by God. There's no way that you and I have even an inkling of how much But when he pulls back the veil and he reveals to us his great love, your heart cannot but burn within you. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Christ said to them, I want to show you how I am to fulfill all things. And he showed them from Old Testament to New Testament, all the things concerning himself. And they turned to each other and said, did not our hearts burn within us when he read to us the scriptures? Friends, I'm going to pray. But what my prayer is, is that it's not me that's reading to you these things, but that you hear the Lord Jesus' words himself read to you, burning on your heart. You're loved by God more than you could ever imagine. And I pray that your prayer is like the prayer of David this morning. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of leaving Egypt. Restore to me the love that I had at first. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you that I wish... Time cannot contain or keep me. It is not sufficient for the fountain of your love. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. My God, bring this to our remembrance. Take our stony hearts and make them hearts of flesh. Pour out your spirit now that we might experience your great love. And as we take of your supper, we pray that you would satisfy the longings and the hungers and the thirsts of our soul. And God, as we sing, we ask that you would fan into flame a love for you that is beyond understanding, but that goes down to the depths of heart, soul, and strength. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.